Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. We love entertainment in our, in our day. Many of us love entertainment that has a competitive aspect to it. Um, shows like Survivor, Hell's Kitchen, uh, Big Brother. Shows where you have people building alliances and then betraying each other. Shows where people lie and they cheat and they deceive one another, they gossip and slander, um, all to win, right? And, and this is just a picture of the world we live in. We live in a world where being prideful and selfish is often celebrated and rewarded. Right, but we don't just see this in our entertainment, we also see it in our careers, right? Often the people who get promoted are those who are willing to step on someone else's back to get ahead, or those who are willing to stab someone else in the back or betray someone uh, to get ahead. We also see this in our marriages. Um, there's great statistics out there that are showing us divorce rate um, is rising or staying fairly consistently high. And one of the realities of this is that often um, people choose divorce because of their own selfish motives. They place themselves and their desires above the covenant that they have uh, established with this other person before God. And they're, they're willing to, to, um, to throw that covenant away just to have what they want. And the, this is just a reality that we, again, we live in a world where we both celebrate and see people rewarded for pride and selfishness. But that's not God's way. God calls us to live in this world in humility. And, and this is us submitting to God, submitting to his will, putting him first in our lives. This is us putting the interests of others before ourselves, like we see in the example of Jesus. Submitting to God's will and putting others first is, is us being humble before God. And that's what James 4 is dealing with. Um, James 4, verse 1 to 12 is, is dealing with. And, um, and so the title, as fitting with our, our series, is A Good Word on Humility. And my aim is really to motivate us, as James gives us motivation, uh, to live a life of humility. And the thing I want us to go away with from this message is very simple. Resist pride and embrace humility. Very simple, big takeaway. Resist pride and embrace humility. 
And so I'm gonna start with, as James starts with pride. And so the first point is that pride, the prideful are always opposed by God. The prideful are always opposed by God. And so just to set up or reset up the context um, from last week, James just finished explaining that true wisdom is revealed in the things we do. Those who have true wisdom are peacemakers. And so James in verse four asks the church a question. He asks his brothers, his brethren a question. James 4.1, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In this passage, he says passions. And I want us to think of passions as strong desires. This is a a way that it could be translated from the, the original language is a strong desire for pleasure. And it has with it the connotation of um, being worldly and earthly pleasures. So things that you can attain in this life, things that you can have physical or otherwise in this life. And so James, he he, he uses rhetorical language because he has the answer. And in fact, he's also given the answer earlier in uh, James 3, verse 16. Should come up for us. He says, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and and every vile practice. This is what James is um, showing them here is, is, is this is what's happening among them. They've allowed their passions, their desire for pleasure has led to jealousy and selfish ambition. And... He, he goes on in verse two to show even further. He says, Your, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Their jealousy has led to sin. They are murdering and coveting, fighting and quarreling. This is the picture of disorder among them, just as James spoke about. And there's an important point that we actually see right out the gate here. Um, Sometimes we think when we sin that our sin only affects us. And James is reminding us in this passage that this is never the case. When we sin, our sin uh, harms others as well. You think about it, when you steal, you're taking from someone. When you lie, you're betraying someone's trust. When you uh, gossip and slander, when we do this, we defame and degrade someone. Our sin never just affects us. And this this is understood throughout scripture from the very beginning. Sins continue to have impacts on generations, on entire communities, on families, on all of us. So our sin never just affects us. And in this, their jealousy is actually because uh, they don't have the things they desire. And James actually tells us why. He goes on in verse two, he says, you covet, sorry, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. 
And he's going to actually give us two reasons in this passage why they don't have what they desire. And the first is they don't ask God. This, this um, not asking God for their desires actually reveals that they don't trust God. They don't believe in his word. See, earlier in the passage, James, uh, he shows us that we can ask for, for wisdom and God gives liberally. He also tells us earlier in John 1, James 1 that, that God is the giver of every good gift. So if they believe these things about God, there's no reason for them to not first go to God with their desires. And so it, it reveals that they don't trust God, but it, it also reveals that there is a pride in them, an arrogance. If, if there's something that God can't get them in their minds, they should be able to get it themselves. They, they place themselves above God. See, pride is deceptive in that it often makes us think that we are self-sufficient. That there's some things that we have the power to get even if God can't get it for us. And so not asking, James shows us, is, is actually pride. Uh, we go on, he gives the, the second reason that he gives for them not receiving. In verse three, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And the second reason is you ask God with selfish motives. This is, and this, this kind of asking exposes um, a heart that is not in submission to God. This is sort of a, a, a jaded and twisted kind of way of asking. You're, you're asking God, no, um, almost assuming that he can't read your heart, that he doesn't know your intentions, he doesn't know your motives. But the Bible teaches us that, that our hearts are exposed to God, that he sees our motives, he knows our intentions. And so this type of asking is, is not in submission to God. And it, it almost, it, it actually insults the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the kingship of God. It, it, it treats God as if he exists simply to grant our desires, to give us what we want. And, and so we see from this that, that it's motivated selfishly. It is also pride. It's pride and it has the same deceptive properties in, in causing us to think that we are self-sufficient, that we have um, a sense of sovereignty to us. And, and pride makes us, in this case, um, behave as if we should get whatever we want. And, and so James shows us in both of these ways that they've asked that there's a selfishness and pride that is at the root of not asking God for what we desire or asking with selfish motives. But God promised us in Scripture, in, in many passages of Scripture, that when we ask, we would receive. Jesus actually tells us that we should ask and we will receive. 
And in Psalms 37, 4, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. And there's John 15, 7 that also tells us that, that um, if we abide in God and his word abides in us, we will ask whatever we will and he will give it to us. And 1 John 5, 14 also says that God hears the the he hears the prayers and answers the prayers of those who ask according to his will. In fact, John actually says we can be confident that he will hear our prayers if we ask according to his will. And so this, this shows us that God, his promise to answer our prayers is actually tied to us asking according to his will. Those who are in submission to God, those are the ones who are granted the promise of having their prayers answered. And this is a key for us because often we find prayer, we can find prayer difficult because it feels like we're asking God for things and he's not granting. But it's important for us to understand that when we go before God with our desires, and, and it's good for us to do that. Every time we desire something, we ought to see God as the one who ultimately grants us whatever we desire and go to him first. But when we do, we need to be in submission to his will. Consider what does his word tell us about, about this thing? What does his word tell us about what he desires for us, what he desires for others? Think about how what we're asking for has an impact on others, on our, our, our loved ones, on our neighbors, on our community, on our church. And, and, and let our prayers be consistent with God's will for all these things and for us. And so this is, this is a how we should deal with our desires. James goes on to show that this selfish and prideful behavior that they show reveals the true love and treasure that they have. Check out verse four. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he starts off with very strong language. And it's particularly strong in this context because James has continually called them brothers and beloved throughout the, 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 the letter. And so calling them adulterous here is actually gonna really rattle some chains. And, and, and it's important for us to see that James really wants this to sink in this next part. He says... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James shows us, he's, he's, he's pointing out to us that this selfish and prideful behavior, as I mentioned before, is the way of the world. And so choosing to live this way, what they've done is they've actually betrayed God, just like a person might betray their spouse. And so he calls them adulterous says they, they're, they're saying they love God, but their actions, the way they, they deal with their desires, the way they deal with one another actually shows that they, they really love the world. 
And so it's revealing what they truly treasure. And Jesus actually makes it clear that, that we can't um, love God and love the world. He says it like this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will devote, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is just the, this is the reality that scripture teaches us is that, is that God doesn't take second place. He's not co-leading. He's not co-God. He's, he's, not, he's not doing things in a way where he's negotiating um, some level of authority. He is at the top. He is always in control. And so this behavior actually is, is betraying God. We can't serve two masters. And James tells us, he goes on to tell us, God's attitude towards this. In verse 5, he says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James shows us God's jealousy. God is jealous in this with this uh, behavior, and his jealousy is right. God is the, the one who created us. He breathed his breath and gave us life. God is the one who, for the church, has given us new life. He's given us his spirit to dwell in us. And so God's jealousy comes from this undeniable fact that we belong to him. And, and we can hear this and we can respond in one of two ways. We can dig our heels in and we can hold on to our pride, continue to put ourselves first and continue to pursue a love of the world. Or we can choose humility. We can humble ourselves before God. We can experience conviction, which comes from the Holy Spirit that was given to us, we can repent and ask for help. And James goes on to tell us the result of either choice. In verse six, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We should honestly be terrified at the thought of being opposed by God. In Hebrews, it actually says that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God. And there's this picture that, that, that God is almighty, all-powerful, but he's also uh, vengeful and wrathful against sin. He will not let it go unjudged. And he won't deal with it lightly. Um, there's three ways in particular that I want to point out that we can be opposed by God or what happens when we're opposed by God. God will not answer our prayers. Scripture teaches us that, um, and, and even this very passage teaches us that, that if God is not for us, if we're not in line with his will and it is in submission to his will, 
he won't hear our prayers. And the next is, we will face God's wrath. We've seen a lot in the Old Testament how Israel, when they uh, went astray and they betrayed God, Israel was often called adulterous because they, they often um, chose to go the way of the world and to choose idolatry over God. And they saw often God's wrath in scattering them. They saw God's wrath in, in bringing their enemies against them. And the, the third is we don't receive God's grace. And this is a, a scary thing. In fact, all three of these should be enough to make us want to resist pride. And in line with this, James also says that God, he gives grace to the humble. And so there are two ways that we see God's grace, that God gives us grace, it's salvation. We have Ephesians 1, God's grace provides redemption and forgiveness of sin. And sanctification, God's grace offers salvation and teaches us to live godly. The, the reality of it is the call to live, um, to resist pride is, 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 is difficult as human beings in this world where we see pride is celebrated and is rewarded in so many cases. And so we desperately need God's grace to obey him in this way. In fact, it's impossible to live the Christian life without God's grace. And in this, James actually, he gives us two motivations that should cause us to want to, as the big takeaway says, resist pride and embrace humility. But James is gonna go on and he's gonna give us one more. And this is point two. The humble will be exalted by God. The humble will be exalted by God. And in this next section, James is actually gonna give us sort of a rapid fire, um, a few examples of um, six ways in particular that we can humble ourselves before God. So the list is there. We can submit to God resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your heart, and mourn and weep. We're gonna look at each of these individually. Verse seven, verse seven now, James says, submit yourself therefore to God. Submit yourself to God. And, and this is what we've been talking about throughout that pride is, 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 is treating God as if, is, is behaving as if we are God. It's behaving as if we are self-sufficient. We don't need God. And so the first thing that we need to do in humbling ourselves before God is submit to God. This is acknowledging God as Lord over our lives. And I want to make it clear, it's acknowledging 
We don't place God as Lord over our lives. God is already God. He's already Lord. He's already in control. The only change is for us to recognize and submit. And, 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 and God is not, he's not going to co-lead our lives with us. He's not co-directing. He's not sharing lordship. He needs to be Lord. He will be Lord. And so we submit. And he goes on in 7 to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We actually have in Matthew 4 a very important um, example of resisting the devil when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness. We see Jesus resist the devil with the word of God. And this is key for us to to resist the devil, we need the word of God. And Peter also helps us, in 1 Peter 1.5, he helps us by showing us that resisting the devil, we resist the devil by being steadfast in our faith. And we kind of sang about it a little bit earlier, this picture that uh, Paul actually gives us in Ephesians 6 of us having armor, spiritual armor that we put on. And in that, he actually shows us the sword. The word of God is actually our spiritual sword in our armor. And faith is our shield. And so I want you to picture it with me is, is when we're resisting the devil, we have our spiritual sword and our shield. We're ready for battle. We're ready when he attacks us. And the promise that we're given here is that he will, he will flee. If we resist him, he will flee. And this is a reality that we have because of what Christ has already done for us. Christ has won the victory over sin and death and he's disarmed the devil. The devil has no power over the believer. The only, the only tool that he has is to tempt us to doubt God. And, and James is reminding us here that often the the evil impulses that we have, the desire to give in to temptation, to choose selfishness and pride, is often, uh, it's, it's, it's provoked by the devil. He's out to get us, and so we need to be ready, fully armed and ready when he attacks, and we will win the battle. James goes on in verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this is us recognizing that we need God's mercy. It actually gives a picture of someone returning in repentance. Someone returning um, with their, their needs kind of out in front. They're, they're, they're admitting that they they need mercy. They're admitting that they need God's grace. And this is the posture that we need to take in humbling ourselves before God. And the promise here is that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And, and we see this picture in scripture with the prodigal son, the, the father's waiting to receive the son and, re, and, and restore him. Forgive him and restore him. And this is God's posture towards us. 
James says, if we draw near to God, he is a loving father waiting to receive us. And he goes on in verse 8 to say, Cleanse your hands, you sinner. James, he, he brings back very harsh language to them to call them adulterous and sinners along um, in, at the same time calling them brothers and, and beloved. Uh, it just reminds us how serious this matter of sin is. He wants them to, to realize that their pride is sin against God. Their pride is sin against God and it makes them unclean. And this picture of them washing their hands brings with it a picture that is similar, um, that is kind of um, bringing us to the Old Testament picture when the, the priests would prepare themselves to enter into worship, into the holies. They would wash themselves. They wanted to be clean. They wanted to be pure before God. This was a symbolic action, but it actually represented cleansing yourselves, in fact, separating yourselves, consecrating yourselves to God. It meant that you were changing, you were, you were putting an end to any behavior or thinking that was sinful and, and, and defiled you and made you unworthy of worship of, 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 or unprepared to, to worship God. And so he calls them to cleanse their hands and it also makes it very clear that there is a need for us to, to just simply stop sinning. It's a very simple concept in that sense. Just stop sinning. And, and, and you hear that and you think this is a tremendous thing sometimes, but it's that simple. The, the things that we do that are defiling us, that are making us unclean before God, we need to end them. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We might recall in James 1, he brings us the, he, 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 he tells us something about the double-minded person, that when they go before God in prayer, they begin to doubt afterwards that God will answer their prayers, that he will do what he said he will do. The double-minded is a picture of someone being divided in their allegiance, in their uh, thinking. And, and it actually brings us back to the very beginning when James says that there's a, a war happening among them because of their passions. It's the picture of them saying they love God, but in their actions, in their behavior, they show that they truly love the world. James is calling them away from this. He's saying, purify your hearts. On the inside, there needs to be done a work to no longer continue to, to try and live a way that is pleasing and acceptable to the world while trying to live pleasing and acceptable to God. These two cannot coexist. We have to choose God now. And this is a really important point because unless this happens, unless we truly cleanse our, unless we truly purify our hearts from double-mindedness, 
then we find that the cycle of sin, the cycle of giving into temptation just continues, right? So he calls them, purify your hearts. And then he says in verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And this, it should give us a fuller picture of what it looks like, what it really should look like when we are repenting. We actually get from this, a, a, um, in, there's, a, there's a picture of this in scripture in uh, Jonah 3 when Jonah tells Nineveh that God is going to destroy them. And Nineveh responds by, have, by every single one of them, from the king to even their cattle and their livestock, are, are told to be in mourning before God. And this is, a, this is a really beautiful but important picture that when we are repentant, when we truly realize our sin, when we acknowledge our sin before God and we consider that our our behavior has put us in opposition to God. This is the posture that we should take. Paul actually teaches us that there is, there's a, a grief that is godly and it actually leads to repentance. There's sorrow that is consistent with a heart that truly realizes that they have sinned against a holy God. And it actually reminds me of my uh, nephew. Um, he, when he was younger, he, there was a period where every time he was punished in a way where someone expressed disappointment in his behavior. So not, not spanking him, not you know, sending him to the corner for timeout or anything, just simply telling him, you know, like, I'm, I'm disappointed in you or showing that like you were, you were displeased with his behavior, this would make him absolutely distraught. This is like the worst thing that you could do to the kid, to, to tell him that you were disappointed in his behavior. And it was, in a sense, this, this idea that he recognized that he hurt, he hurt someone that he loved. And, and this is kind of what it is that, that James is actually calling us in this moment that we are before God, humbling ourselves before God in repentance, we need to be grieving over the fact that we've sinned against God. It ought to bring us sorrow to consider what our behavior, what our attitude has, has um, said to God, that we've betrayed God in our behavior. That ought to grieve us. So James, he's calling us, he's calling them in this and us to, to have a posture of mourning, of grief over our sin. That means we've, we've also aligned our uh, thinking with God's so that we hate the things that God hates. We're grieved over the things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And so this is an important posture. And, and so 
after going through this list, I'm sure you, like me, when I was even reading this and, 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 and working through this, uh, see how tremendously weighty this list is. And, and so the question comes to us, how do we do these things? How do we do these six things? And, and it's by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that God has given to us, that he's placed inside of us, that he's given to his church. Here are six things that the Holy Spirit does that enables us to do these six things in humbling ourselves before God. One is he enables us. Sorry, I don't have the, the list up there. Kind of ran outside of my, my window, my time. But uh, one, he enables us to confess that Jesus is Lord. In 1 Corinthians twelve three, it actually says that no one can confess that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to confess. And this is the picture of us submitting to God as Lord. He is our God. He is our Lord. Two, he teaches us and reminds us what Jesus said. This is John 14, 25. The Spirit, he, he, he will teach us all that we need to know and bring to our remembrance the things that God has reminded us. This enables us to, to, to have the word of God ready when we um, are resisting the devil, right? And three, he convicts us. The spirit actually does the work of convicting us of our sin. He makes us realize that we're guilty and that we need God's mercy. Four, he is the means by which we kill our sin and our sinful impulse. This is Romans 8, 13. It says, by this, if we, if we put to death, if by the Spirit we put to death our sinful ways, we will have life. The Spirit is, is key. He's instrumental in us killing sin, not just a one-time thing, but again and again. Five, he, is, he sanctifies us. It's 1 Peter 1, 2. The Spirit actually does the work in us to sanctify us. The ongoing work of sanctification is, is a part of the work of the Holy Spirit in making us more like Jesus and conforming us to the image of Christ. That is a work of the Spirit. And six, he is the seal that guarantees our inheritance in Christ. The Spirit is the one who, he, um, in Romans it actually says that he bears witness with us that we are the children of God. He, he allows us to know that we belong to God and that, and that we have guaranteed uh, inheritance with Christ, joint heirs with Christ. The Spirit's work is massive in our lives and we ought to, we ought to recognize the work of the Spirit in helping us to submit to God, to humble ourselves before God. James goes on in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James reminds us how merciful our God is. God doesn't leave us in 
our sorrow and grief when we come before him in repentance. We get low and God promises uh, he will exalt us, he will lift us up. In Psalms 51, 17, it says this, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God, he responds to those who come humbly before him in repentance, who submit to him by exalting them. And it's important that we understand that this exaltation, we, we, there, there's a sense where we receive this now, we, we realize this now. God lifts our heads when we come before him in repentance. He exalts us when we humble ourselves before him, when we make him Lord of our lives, when we go to him with our desires. There are many promises in scripture that give us confidence that God will exalt us now, that he will grant our prayers now. There is, though, this reality that we live with as Christians that some of the things that we desire, ultimate peace in, in, in our world, in our life, is not something that will be realized now, but God has promised that he will exalt us ultimately, that he will glorify all who've put their trust in him, all who have the seal of the spirit will share in that inheritance. And from this, James, it seems to shift slightly, but he's not really. In verse 11, it says this, do not speak evil, against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. James realizes after, after rebuking some brothers, some sisters, he realizes here that there's gonna be a temptation among some to begin to judge and slander. You can almost picture it that, that, that this is the person who has failed to guard their hearts against sin in the moment when they're seeing someone being corrected. And, and sometimes this isn't verbalized, sometimes this is internal, but this case he's speaking of Verbalization, but we have sometimes where in our own hearts we we see someone being corrected and we think to ourselves, Well, I've never done that sin. I don't sin in that way, I don't do those things. We start to compare ourselves. This puffs us up. We feel like somehow we're superior in morality. We're we're better people because we don't sin in that way. And James, he's calling us to be to be careful of this. Don't judge or speak against a brother. Don't do this. Church, the way that we should respond when, when we see someone being corrected is, as brothers, we should, we should weep together over all sin. There should never be a moment where we see sin and and even if it's in someone else where we're, 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 you know, 
somewhat kind of happy that it happened to them, that it wasn't us. It should make us weep just the same. This, our, this response is, is something that is submission to God. And we should also desire to see our brethren restored. And in this, we are to be careful guarding our own hearts, guarding our own ways so that we would not sin in the process, so that we wouldn't be those who are judging and slandering others as we witness them being rebuked. And so, and so if you imagine here, you can see very clearly that James is actually not dealing with anything different. He's dealing with pride, and it's consistent with what he's said earlier on in his letter about our tongue. How, how difficult it is to tame the tongue. This small thing can have such a great impact on our lives. And this is what James is saying. He's saying, guard your heart. Guard your tongue. Don't, don't give in to the temptation to begin to, to judge someone else. He says, when you do this, you actually deceive yourselves. It's prideful. You deceive yourselves. Pride that deceptive nature comes again and, and it makes you think that you are a judge. It makes you think that you're above God's law. So you actually, you actually judge God's law with your own opinion. And in doing so, you, you, you pit one law of God against the other because you're ignoring your own sin, the plank in your eye, and focusing on someone else's sin, assuming that that, that one's worse, so, so no one's concerned about my sin. He says, this person is not a doer of the law, they're a judge. So our response needs to be in humility, submitting to God and aligning our desires with his. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but it is patient toward, but it is patience towards us, towards you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is merciful and, and his desire as it's expressed here, his will is, his desire is that we would all come to repentance. And this, when we have this posture, when someone is being rebuked, when someone is being corrected, when we have this attitude of mercy, a desire to see them restored, uh, guarding our own hearts against sin, we align ourselves with God's heart, with God's way. We humble ourselves, we submit to God rather remain in submission to God. And in verse 12, James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? God is the only lawgiver and judge. God alone gives judgment and has the right to judge. And God's righteous judgment 
will show against coveting, it'll show against slander and all other sins. But he says, God, this law, the lawgiver, the judge, he is also the one who saves. God is the, the one who has granted us salvation. He's, the Father has given us Jesus Christ. He's given us the Son. This is a familiar passage, John 3.16. You could probably all say it together. Oh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is... He's merciful and he has given us salvation in Christ Jesus. And James ends with a, another rhetorical question, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And it kind of hangs on this, this, this ending that actually should cause us to examine, to really think through our own behavior, our own sin. This ending, it, it, it should motivate us to, to humility, to, to, to humble ourselves before God and consider how our behavior, our ways are consistent with the world, how we have been selfish and prideful at times and put ourselves first. James gives us a statement that, that, that hangs us to this reality. And it is, it is to remind us that the, the Christian life is to be marked by humility. That we submit to God's will. That we put the interests of others before ourselves. And when we submit to God's will and submit to his will in prayer and surrender our desires to him, we put our trust that God is the one who will meet our needs, that he's the one who will ultimately satisfy us in a way that no one else and nothing else can. But the Christian life is, is not perfect. And we will not be perfected in this life. And so this reality should cause us to be committed to repentance. That is a key to, to chapter 4, verse 1 to 12, is, is the Christian needs to be committed to repentance. God's promise to us is that if we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us. God will restore us. So the Christian needs to be committed to repentance, turning from sin and pride and turning to humility. We resist pride and embrace humility. And God gives more grace. And we can embrace pride because we have in our Savior an example. Jesus Christ also resisted pride and humbled himself. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8. 
It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think it continues. No. I'm gonna I want us to see the, the remainder of this passage. continues therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every and um, every every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father we see Jesus humbled himself taking on the form of man, going to the cross, bearing our sin and our shame. He humbles himself. What does it say? God exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name, a name that that every knee bows and every tongue confess. Just, Just realize in this that submission to God is inevitable whether we humble ourselves now before God or we, or we dig our heels and we hold on to our pride, God is going to get the glory. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. James motivates us with this picture of God opposing the proud God giving grace to the humble and God exalting the humble just as our Lord and Savior Christ has humbled himself and been exalted we have a promise for the same thing that when we humble ourselves before God we will be exalted if we resist pride and embrace humility. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, for many of us, this is a reminder. If we've been in the church for any length of time, we've, we've heard how important it is for us to humble ourselves, to resist pride. But God, we, we know that this is This is not an easy thing for us in this life. We're going against the world. We're going against the current. We're going against the norms of this time. We're going against the things that are often celebrated, the things that are often uh, promoted. 
but Lord, you are the one that we put our trust in. You're the one that we look to for praise, for exaltation. You're the one that we look to to see all our needs met. And so, Father, I pray that this would be, for many of us, a a sobering reminder of of how important humility is and that it's, it's motivation to all of us to humble ourselves. And, and Father, I pray, Lord, that, that this would be not just something theoretical, but Lord, that we would be examining ourselves and we would be seeking uh, ways that you would have us humble ourselves before you, ways that you would have us submit to you in prayer, the things that we desire, the things uh, that we've Um, sought to go after and sought to accomplish in our own strength and in worldly wisdom, Lord, that we would would seek your wisdom. And Father, we we would believe your promises that you will give grace to the humble, that you will exalt the humble, and that there will be ways that we realize your exaltation now of us but we also have the hope that you will exalt us ultimately. So Lord, we look to you today in this, and we pray all this for your glory and our joy in you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.